Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome back, everyone, to There's No Business Like. I'm Kevin Maynard with Quad City Arts, and today I am joined by my co-host, Danielle. Hello, hello, hello. It is Danielle from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. We have another exciting interview of one of our own today with Miss Katie Miller. Hi, everyone. Danielle, do you want to get us started? I would love to. To kick things off, <laughs> I have one of my most absolute favorite thing in the world for you. It's a weather round. It's oh, not no. a lightning round. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's not a lightning round. It's a blizzard round. Why? Because I live in Michigan? Because you live in Michigan. So it's blizzard round colon. How pure Michigan is she? Oh, good Lord. Does someone have okay. a drum roll? <laughs> Blizzard round with Katie Miller. Okay, so now the rules of the game are, I'm going to ask you things about Michigan. We all know that you oh, no. were unfortunately not born in Michigan. So we're not expecting perfection like me, clearly. But we just all deeply, deeply love to learn about Michigan. So here we go. Blizzard. What is the Michigan state motto? If you seek a pleasant peninsula, look around you. Honestly, I knew that already. <laughs> Funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what? <laughs> You've told me that. Why and is it's it so long? adorable? <laughs> and why would I seek a pleasant peninsula? I mean, because I want are. to now, but wait, is that like, is that like throwing shade at Florida? You're like, Oh, look, I want to be down there. So. Uh, I don't know that that was the intent, but it absolutely is. <laughs> we have two peninsulas. So, you know, wherever you are in the state, you are definitely on a pleasant peninsula. Blizzard round is off to a pleasant start. <laughs> All right, Katie, Michigan beer or wine? Oh, Michigan wine. Michigan wine. Michigan known for its wine region. All right. What other Michigan products should we know about? Oh, my gosh. Well, how much time do we have? A lot. Because Michigan is known for so many things. We are the cherry capital of the world. That is why we host the National Cherry Festival in Traverse City every year. We are also the home of Gerber Baby Food. So there's also the National Baby Food Festival in Fremont, Michigan every year. Okay, uh, expand on that. <laughs> like, yeah, what? do adults eat it? Like, what's happening? I have... Okay, I have to say, I have never actually been to the Baby Food Festival, even though I used to live about 45 minutes away from there. But I can't from imagine I, why. <laughs> from what I understand, they always have some large scale entertainment and then they have baby races. So they like literally race babies. See how fast they can crawl. Hart, Michigan, which is also close to Muskegon where I grew up, is the asparagus capital of the world. So we also have the National Asparagus Festival there. And there is a Mrs. Asparagus that is crowned every year. And she is the spokesperson <laughs> for the uh, national asparagus industry. And I have actually hosted. Uh, so what year were you, Mrs. Asparagus? <laughs> I have never competed in the Mrs. Asparagus <laughs> Festival in the competition. Um, but there's a documentary about the asparagus industry made by a Michigan filmmaker that I hosted once at the Playhouse. And Mrs. Asparagus came and was our guest. And she talked about what it's like to be Mrs. Asparagus and the asparagus industry and so on and so forth. Kevin, can you say asparagus <laughs> five times quickly? Asparagus, 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 asparagus. Nope. <laughs> I got a solid three. <laughs> Okay, so we're about halfway through the blizzard round. Okay, um, who's your favorite Michigan celebrity? Aretha Franklin. Um, okay. What the hell is a Michigan left turn? So Michigan left turn is a traffic maneuver that is specific only to Michigan, where essentially when you're on a divided road and you want to go the opposite direction, you can essentially make a legal U-turn to go through the divider to go back the opposite way. I, we will have to link a diagram in the show notes, I think, so people can see. I think, Kevin, I've sent you this diagram of how to make a Michigan left. So say I wanted to find some land-based dinosaur bones in Michigan. Is that a possibility? It is not because dinosaurs never actually lived in Michigan. So only a very large and very, very small aquatic <laughs> creatures <laughs> lived in Michigan. Incredible. I know. Fascinating, right? Blows my mind. Okay, so now I'm going to take all of your answers and I'm going to put them in the pure Michigan machine. All right, guys, I got my answer. Do you want to know how pure Michigan is she? How pure so, pure. Is she? so pure. So <laughs> pure. <laughs> 
All right, Katie, thank you for taking part in this very official, very real blizzard round to determine how pure Michigan is she. So to hop in, I just wanted to see, Katie, if you would delight us with um, your background and your origin story. How did Katie get here? So Danielle, I my story starts when I was three years old when my mom put me in dance classes. So I started out at age three as a dancer doing tap, not ballet, because I wanted nothing to do with pink and tutus. And I wanted the shoes that made all the loud noises. Yes. So I started out as a tapper and eventually started jazz dance and contemporary and that sort of thing and took dance based basically my entire life until I graduated high school. And in the meantime, started doing theater when I was, I think my first show was in fifth grade when we still lived in Massachusetts. And then after moving to Michigan, was able to start taking classes in camps through Muskegon Civic Theater. I you know, got really inspired and really kind of like caught the theater bug and was in my first show at my high school in seventh grade. So I participated in theater all through high school. I did shows with Civic Theater. Eventually, when I went to college, I just could not stay away. And I majored in political science communications and theater studies. Uh, the theater studies program was really kind of brand new at that point and was part of the communications department. So I was blessed, I would say, to actually be part of the inaugural like freshman class that was able to then grow and kind of help develop what that program looked like at my college. Um, I did the those, same thing. Through my four years. Yeah. And I had some incredible professors and it was a really small program at the time. So I really got a chance to learn everything I needed to know to become an arts administrator, whether I like knew that that was going to be my path or not. So I started out as performing, took acting classes, quickly was kind of moved into a direction and production track by my by um, our professor team that just saw that I really had the organizational side of my brain and the creative side of my brain. They were like, ooh, you should be a stage manager. Ooh, you should be a director. I quickly moved into that area, but also was able to learn lighting, you know, how to hang and focus lights and lighting design and a little bit of costuming and do some property work. Really got a wide range of experience in my program there. And quickly determined, oh, political science, while I love it and I was super passionate about it, still really plays a huge role in the work that I do today. I just realized I didn't really have the personality for it. So while I'm super invested in social justice and public policy and thinking about how that interplays with the arts now, that just clearly wasn't my path at the time. So anyway, graduated in <laughs> same year as Danielle. I think we graduated in 2009 <laughs> when, oh wait, recession. And there were no jobs that I applied all over the place, internships, apprenticeships, real full-time jobs. And there just was nothing available at the time. So I ended up going back to Muskegon, moved out to DC and worked out in Washington, DC for a while and finally came back. And I was lucky enough to be at an, a community event downtown after I come back to Muskegon and one of my former directors and mentors, Kirk Wahamaki said, oh, hey, have you heard of the Helmet Playhouse, which is now known as the Playhouse at White Lake? Yeah, like I've seen like one or two shows up there, but like don't really know what they're doing. And he was like, oh, they need a stage manager for one of their summer stock shows. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be cool. So he introduced me to Cindy Beth Davis-Dykema, who is uh, the manager of the Playhouse at the time. And we just hit it off. And that was really a key moment because after working on that show, getting to know the incredibly talented staff and creative teams that were working on the shows that summer, getting to know Cindy Beth. It just started my my whole relationship with that theater space. And she had me stay around and do some house management and, you know, small gigs here and there over the course of like the next year while I was working a job I really hated. And then when she decided she was going to leave, she just called me one day and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave the Playhouse. I think you should apply for my job. And I was like, uh, I'm 23. I don't know that that's a good idea. <laughs> right. What experience do I have? But she said, no, I think you're the right person for the job. And like, we can talk about it and whatever. So I did. I submitted my resume, went in for the interview. And I recently I was doing some cleaning and found my notebook with my interview notes, like my prep notes for that interview. And I was like, oh, damn. Was it a whole notebook? <laughs> it's like a small notebook and it's probably like 10 or 12 pages oh, okay. of wow. prep notes. And I was reading through them. I was like, I was way smarter at 23 than I am now. <laughs> or maybe you were smarter than you gave yourself credit for, but definitely still just as smart. Before we move into your career path and your career trajectory, I want to take a couple steps back to like the beginning of your, your college days. So one question first is, did you start college with theater studies? Was that something that you started? Was that something you picked up once you started, like got into college? 
No, I went in fully intending to double major and minor. So I had um, double major in political science, communication and theater studies. That was like two majors and then a minor in environmental policy. (laughs) And I had, by the time I graduated, I almost had enough credits for a history minor as well. What drew you to political science in the first place? Like why, why that? Well, honestly, the West Wing, (laughs) if you guys know the show, the West Wing. Uh, Yes. Like I am one of those uh, millennials that grew up watching that show and was really just super inspired by that show and the idea of really making an impact. And I think that plus a teacher I had in high school, Steve Sanaki, he was my my government and economics teacher for all four years of school. He had such a way about talking about government and the impact that government can have and the impact that public policy and the difference that public policy can make in people's lives that I was really drawn to that. And I, I just thought that was maybe the best avenue for me to make change in the world. And certainly like I went to spend a semester in Washington, D.C. in school my, my sophomore year um, that was all about community development policy. And so we would travel around the city and meet with different nonprofits, different community leaders, really kind of get into the weeds in terms of healthcare policy for veterans or food deserts or juvenile justice and things like that and really get a, a chance to dig in deep into how those policies affect people's lives on a day-to-day basis. Again, huge turning point for me in understanding that in a really practical, emotional level. Frankly, like I carry that with me and it's a huge part of the work that I do now. As I've gotten more and more into my arts work, my obsession with political science and politics has subsided. I think one, just it's exhausting. And two, like my passions have just changed a little bit, but I am still really passionate about bringing attention and exploring social justice issues and public policy issues through the medium of the arts, right? So whether it be film, whether that be music, dance, theater, whatever that is. You can really like open up doors to conversation and have different dialogue through opening that door through the arts, right? It's a little bit of a a different way of accessing it. It can take people by surprise. It can put them into a space where they are more open and vulnerable to discussing things that are sometimes difficult. And so I really have programmed a lot, especially since coming to the Midland Center for the Art, done a lot of programming that focuses on fostering those conversations and opening up those doors, frankly, like making people uncomfortable, (laughs) It's a little bit of my specialty, I would say. Putting people into a space where they have to think differently about what they've just experienced. And hopefully they're walking away with a fresh idea or a new perspective or wanting to learn something more, digging in in their own personal time or just taking time to reflect later on. And maybe that moment isn't, it's five minutes after they leave and they're in the car or maybe it's two days later or two weeks later. But my hope is always that people walk away with like a something in the back of their brain that they're not going to forget. Let's pop back to to your start at the Playhouse. Obviously, you got the job at the Playhouse. You are 23 years old. What does that feel like? Who the hell gives a 23-year-old a theater is what that feels like. <laughs> no, I came in um, November of 2010 to the Playhouse. And frankly, she was 90 two or 93 years old at the time. So I had this like almost 100 year old historic theater that was falling down around me that all of a sudden I was in charge of. I continued on with our summer fine arts festival, which was seven to eight weeks of back to back summer professional summer stock productions. So we would like put a show up, do three performances, tear it down that night and then start installing the next set the next day. So we did would do that every summer. I continued the the Friday night concert series with local and regional musicians, which if you have heard me say this before, like Michigan is an incredible um, breeding ground for Americana and folk and indie pop artists. So we really focused on that sort of programming. Grew our youth theater programs from like 50 kids participating in programs annually to over 200 kids participating annually in those programs. We did a rebrand. I was just able to build and do things that like my predecessors had envisioned for the space. I was just able to just like take that next step forward. And that was due not only to like their support, but also incredible, some incredible volunteers and folks in the community that really believed in what we were trying to build and and step forward to help with graphic design and web design. Like I would write all the copy, but then Bill would build and maintain the website, for instance. And he did that pro bono. That was just his way that he could contribute. So there are some really incredible folks that helped along the way and made the changes that I wanted to make possible. Not to get you off track, but how many hours a week do you think you were working? Oh, I was working 80 hours a week every week for three years straight. And was that sustainable? No, it really wasn't. Doing all the programming, the marketing, the budgeting, picking all the shows, hiring all the staff, managing that staff in the summertime, doing all the community engagement work, all the fundraising, working all those hours. I took maybe like two vacations, I think, during that whole time. Definitely got to a point of burnout. And that's 
why I had to leave. So I was there for a little over three years and decided like, yeah, I, I have to be done with this because it's not healthy. It's just as much as I love that facility, I'm so passionate about her and was like laying the groundwork for our capital campaign and was really excited to see what she could become. I just couldn't do it anymore. That feels like a point in the story where I wish that there had been another layer of support there. And initially I had very, very part-time technical support person, Don, who was wonderful, but Don had to retire. So I really was a team of one for nine months out of the year, other than the, you know, the wonderful volunteer support that I mentioned. I would like be in my office during the day and be reading scripts or doing budgets or like whatever that was, and then go to the theater at three o'clock in the afternoon, clean the restrooms, vacuum everything, prep the ticket office, wash the windows, like whatever needed to be done to prep the theater for a show that night, house manage, get on stage, do a curtain speech, maybe run the soundboard, like if I didn't have an audio engineer available, and then close the theater up and head home at like midnight. Not unusual for me to be in the office from like 8 a.m. to midnight every single day. No idea idea why that would burn you out but it was also like it was such a magical time too like I think if you've ever like finished a long night and put the ghost light out and you go and you stand on that empty stage and you look out into those seats there is something so beautiful and fulfilling and peaceful about that sort of makes it all worthwhile (laughs) until you realize you have to do it all over again the next day I think there's something beautiful about being entrusted by your community with such an asset and them saying like, regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, like we believe in you and we think you can do this and letting you do it. After that, got burned out (laughs) and landed a job at Interlochen Center for the Arts up in beautiful Traverse City. My boss, Chris Gruitz, there was an incredible mentor uh, who ran Interlochen Presents, which is the presenting arm of of Interlochen, which is a boarding arts high school and summer camp. I worked for the presenting arm and I was the artist relations manager there for four years. That was an incredible learning experience. I knew a little bit about contracting and presenting, but that was very low budget contracts for these like regional bands and that sort of thing. And my time at Interlochen was an incredible crash course and like booking large artists like Diana Ross and ZZ Top, artists that have since their time that I worked with them gone on to like do amazing things. Like there's a documentary about um, jazz pianist Chris Bowers out on Hulu right now. Like I worked with Chris at the very beginning of his career before he really like struck a big. It was a really cool opportunity for me to do contracting and negotiations and learn about artist writers and then actually like work with those artists directly. So I was kind of like artist relations there was maybe a little different than other places just because the interlocking campus is out in the woods. <laughs> if you're not familiar, it's a this like amazing place that's out in the northern Michigan woods. The campus is about a mile end to end and is stretched then across actually two parts of, of the highway. Um, so you interlock in public radios on one side and there's more like camp facilities. Uh, but the bulk of the bulk of the campus is like right on the lake and it's beautiful. But like if you don't know that campus, you're gonna get lost. So like literally sometimes I would have to take the artist by the hand and walk them across campus because they had no idea where they were going between master classes and performances and and all that stuff. So it was an incredible opportunity to learn like a lot of new skills and get to work with incredible people and see how an institution of that size work the scale from going from like a team of one (laughs) to like all of a sudden having high school like during the school year staff was like 300 people and then that would scale up even more with camp counselors and stuff in the summer. I think one of my most shocking things was like, wait a second, I don't have to clean the restrooms before a performance. There's somebody that does that. Like there's a whole department that maintains our facilities. I don't have to do that anymore. Like I don't have to climb out on the roof and knock icicles down. I don't have to hang and focus the lights by myself. It was such a huge shift to be able to just focus on kind of one set of tasks and not have to literally do everything to make a performance happen from beginning to end. Um, So that was a really, and living in Traverse City is like amazing. And you're like, one of my favorite memories is walking across campus like super early in the morning, like probably 6 a.m. prepping for a show. And you just hear out of like some campers open window, the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue. Like they're playing on their clarinet at 6 a.m. in the morning and the sun is shining and like it doesn't get any better than that. Like it just doesn't. And so the magic that happens on that campus with the confluence of professional artists and students and administrators that are like super passionate, educators that are super passionate about the arts. It's really something quite special. 
After Interlochen, you moved to Midland. What took you from Interlochen to Midland? So in December of 2016, I was elected the president of the Michigan Presenters Network, which is our statewide consortium. And the way that happened was literally like we were on a phone call for elections and people are like, Katie, you're the youngest person in the organization. You want to run Michigan Presenters? And I was like, yes. Maybe? Sure. Here, just hand me another nonprofit to run. So I became the president of the Michigan Presenters Network and wanted to bring back the annual conference, which had been gone for several years. Past past president, Brian Howe, was the only institutional knowledge we had at that point in time. So Brian was very helpful in getting me all the files we needed and like kind of giving me the lay of the land. And I said, hey, I want to bring back the conference. And he said, oh, we'll host it in Midland. Like, that's easy. We can host it here at the center, centrally located for everybody across the state. So in June, we headed to Midland Center for the Art for the conference, met, you know, some wonderful colleagues there. And then out of the blue, six months later, I got a call from Brian recruiting me to come be the new manager of community engagement at the center. So it was really, quite honestly, like my work with Michigan Presenters and reestablishing some core components of that organization, building out the membership. We went from like 12 members to 25 members during my first year of my presidency. And really just the board was able to reactivate the organization within that year that just kind of put me on their radar. And they said, oh, I think we want Katie for this job, which is hugely flattering and completely unexpected because of some other things. We had about three days to decide whether we were going to move to Midland or not. So clearly ended up taking the job, moved to Midland, and we've been here for about five years now. And in that time, I have really had the honor of establishing what community engagement looks like for the center that didn't really exist before my role was created. And so in my time here, I have really focused on internally developing really better relationships and collaboration between departments because we are such a multifaceted organization. I don't know that I've actually talked about what we do at the center, but we do all the things. So we have professional performing arts. We have in-house produced performing arts between our professional symphony orchestra, our community theater programs, and our community choirs program. We have a visual arts museum. We have a hands-on science museum. We have visual arts education opportunities, and we are historical society as well. So I've really focused on internal collaboration and building better bridges between departments and then also building our external relationships and building new programming that is social justice focused, is really community focused, building our out partnerships with the LGBTQ community, with the Black community in Midland, thinking about who historically for our community has not had access. And that's a lot of people. And so breaking down those walls, figuring out why that is, talking to the people who work within those communities has been really key to figuring out like, what do people need? What do people want? And how do we provide a better overall experience and engagement with the arts at the center? So I want to dig into that a little bit more. Can you tell us what does a community engagement manager, what does that work look like for somebody who thinks they might be interested in doing that in an organization? I think there's some basic tenants, right, that we have... We've discussed, and if you read any sort of work from like Donna Walker-Kuhn or other leaders in the field, they will say that conversation comes first, right? Genuine connection and conversation. So you have to do the work of essentially just reaching out and being genuine in your intention of building those relationships and having conversations and saying like, hey, we haven't done a good job of this. We want to do better. We want to partner. I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know what that's going to look like, but there's probably an opportunity here. I want to genuinely work together on that with you. It's all about that outreach and that communication and that genuine relationship building to start. And people have to know that you're really passionate about it and really genuine and you're not just ticking a box and you're not just doing it for a grant application. Like you really have to be invested. In addition to that communication, you also have to really know something about the community that you're trying to engage with. You have to understand the socioeconomics of that. You have to understand the history of the people that you're trying to engage with. And you have to understand like why they might not feel welcome, right? Actually asking those questions to go like, hey, tell me straight up, why don't you come to the, whatever your facility is? Is it because the programming doesn't feel right? Is it because you've had a bad experience before? It's not family friendly. Like what are those things that make it uncomfortable or make it feel not welcoming? Is it the physical facade of the building? Like our building is brick and it is enormous. And so I can very much imagine that that is very intimidating for some people. It just doesn't feel warm and friendly. So how do you then make the experience different or invite people in in a different way to help overcome kind of that barrier to participation? It might not come to fruition for a long time. They might not be ready. You might not have the right programming, might not be the right time. There might be distrust because of past like things that have happened in the past before your time that you have to figure out and you have to work through. But as long as you just keep checking in and you keep having those conversations and you're really intentional about how you build it out, eventually you can get there. Katie, for you, like where does that passion come from? 
I have this philosophy, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? The pyramid. Um, at the bottom is food, clothing, shelter. I think the arts belong at that very bottom layer of the pyramid too. Because if you feed the body, like you can feed the body, you can shelter the body, but if you also don't feed the soul, what's the point? So for me, like it is a basic human need to engage with self-expression in some way, shape or form, right? It helps us process the things that happen to us. It helps us understand the world better. It helps us connect with others. Um, so for me, it's like a very basic thing. And I truly believe that every person deserves access to that and to engage however they, however they need to or however they want to. When did you realize that? It's a great question. Like, I honestly don't know. I think it probably came out of just my own like need to participate or want to participate or need for creativity. I think probably when I started at the Playhouse and doing the work every day and and really starting to be deeply embedded in these ideas about like, how do I price ticket? How do I get kids more access to our summer camps or our, our spring break education classes or whatever that looks like? And then I think just as my career developed and I was started doing more professional development, being part of bigger industry conversations, it became very apparent to me that this was a desperate need in our field. And again, I think the combination of my passion for social justice and making people's lives better combined with my love for the arts, that's just my avenue. It's just my avenue for, I know I believe everyone has a responsibility to their community and the, the people that they live around for service. And this is the way that I can best serve people that live in my community. So I know, too, that you book the Youth and Family Series at Midland. How does that fit in? Is that just integral to community engagement work? Is that sort of something that's separate? And like, what is your, what do you see as your vision statement for the kind of performances that you? Yeah, I started my passion for family and youth programming actually back at Interlock, and it was something I advocated for. It wasn't part of our programming portfolio at all, and I thought it was something we were really missing. There, I mean, Traverse City is a family-friendly community. The school systems up there, you know, there just wasn't any sort of engagement. And so I started advocating for it. That's when I kind of started learning about more family artists and doing my own research. And I would put together like these portfolios of artists that we could potentially bring in. And then when I was recruited to come to Midland, that's when they were like, oh, you really love family programming here. <laughs> To our family <laughs> school programming on top of community engagement work. Um, but I do think they go hand in hand, Danielle. You know, something we focus on a lot in community building is children, right? And the future of children and, and how they're being supported, how they're being taught, how they're being cared for, because they are the future of our communities. We want them to stay here. You know, so we're talking about even like quality of life and and talent retention and like all of these other things that that play into that. Longevity of our arts organizations is dependent upon kids being engaged in the arts from the beginning, right? From when they're babies so that they become performers or technicians or administrators. But we also want them to become patrons and just lovers of the arts at bare minimum, right? That's because we need patrons too. We need people who are passionate about it as well and will support in a myriad of ways. Family programming is about all of those things, creating connections between kids and parents or grandparents and kids, their friends and their communities and seeing that like, this is something they can do too, or they can get really passionate about, or they can explore, or it's an avenue for self-expression or an avenue for resiliency. Like kids have been through so much in the last few years with the pandemic and everything else. Like resiliency is one of those, those things that kids need and participation in the arts can really help with that. So there's so many reasons to participate. Communities that have the arts are just better. They're healthier. They're more connected. People have more passion, more civic pride. They stick around longer when there's stuff to do. And for kids to grow up in a community that has all of that, they're going to take away all of those things as well. Also, like there's just beauty in taking it in, right? And every kid is going to have a different experience walking out of that theater and the impact that we can have on a child's life through a show like The Rainbow Fish or the Okie Dokie Brothers or like whomever that is, it's immeasurable. And that is what keeps me coming back to work every single day. It's just that idea of I can change somebody's life. I'll never know it. Hopefully, hopefully there's like one kid in that audience that's going to be changed forever because of that show they came and saw. So I would like to take a step back from work for a little bit. Outside of work, like what are you doing to refill your cup? Well, as our listeners know, I do have a four and a half year old son who is the light of my life. And we live only two blocks from Great Lakes Ice Cream Company. Uh, so we spend a lot of time there. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we just took a bike ride this weekend down to the ice cream shop. So, you know, I, I so spend- is Great Lakes Ice Creamery, a Michigan based uh, ice cream it, shop. It is. It's a family owned ice cream shop. Two blocks from my house. Great Lakes Ice Cream Company. They I think they have the best ice cream. And what's your son's favorite ice cream from there? His favorite is a flavor that they call dog puke ice cream, yep. which is <laughs> <laughs> green pistachio ice cream with colored chunks of cookie dough in it. That's adventurous. It's very adventurous for a four-year-old. It was vanilla for the longest time. You know, so I spend a lot of time with my family and doing family stuff, going to the park and the splash pad and taking him out on adventures. I'm huge into experiences and adventures for my child versus stuff. Um, so we go to the zoo and we go to the nature center and we we do all of those things. I really like getting him outside and away from screens and and all of that stuff. And then in terms of like community and volunteer stuff, I have always been probably more engaged and busier than I should be right now. And uh, since I guess since spring of 2019, I have been a part of the Midland County Inclusion Alliance, which is an organization of dedicated volunteers that are working to make Midland County and beyond a more welcoming and inclusive place for everybody to live. So I sit on the board of that organization. We do education and workshops and community events and collaborate with other organizations across a whole variety of inclusion areas. So I spend a good amount of time volunteering and doing work there. I was one of the founding committee members of the first ever Juneteenth celebration here in Midland County last year and continued that on this year. And it's a really beautiful thing that we've established. I'm really was proud to have been invited to be a part of developing that new um, celebration for our community. I still sit on the board of the Michigan Presenters Network as past president. So I spend a little bit of time, not a lot, because we have some wonderful board members now that are really you know, doing great things. But I sit on an advisory role. And then I also sit on the board of the Cultural Advocacy Network for the state of Michigan through the Michigan Presenters Network. Um, so I do a little bit of work on the advocacy side of things too. Wow. And I know there, you're probably going to be a little too humble, but Katie is a statewide award winner for her mm -hmm. work that she's done in equity. It's okay. You don't have to say it. Thanks. We're Dana. proud of you. We're so Thanks. proud of you. All right, Katie. So when I think of you, I think of somebody who is a connector. Um, you definitely have kept our group well on track for one, but definitely connected anytime I'm anywhere physically with you or even in a Zoom. People have other conversations that they're having with you and you're connecting them to other people who are also interested in that thing. You're just such a, a really important figure in, in the youth and family and the theater for young audiences world. I just wanted, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what bringing people together and bringing people up because I've been with you when you've been really encouraging younger staff members and newer people in the field to get more experience. Thanks, Danielle. That's very kind of you. And I appreciate that very much. I do think that connecting people is like one of my superpowers. It's just like a very natural thing for me. And I, I gain a lot of pleasure, frankly, out of making connections and seeing things grow out of that. And it's so easy for me to do, right? It doesn't take more than a minute to connect people via email or text or whatever that is, or at a party, right? Put two people together. Kirk Wahamaki did that for me and connecting me with Cindy Beth. And it completely changed my life. If I had not gotten connected with Cindy Beth, I never would have stage managed the woman in black. I never would have gotten involved in that theater space. I never would have managed the dominoes that can fall from that very simple act, I think uh, are incredible. And in terms of like mentorship, I would say like, We've talked a lot about mentorship and I have been really lucky to be the recipient of really informal mentorship over the course of my career. In particular, there are some women that I've just shared space with that have been incredibly influential in just how they move through the world, the things that they do to lift other people up, the intentionality behind their own work in the art or in their role in the community that has really shaped how I view women in the arts and women in the workplace and like how we need to advocate for each other and lift each other up and make sure that we're getting the support that we need, the recognition that we deserve. There are some in particular that like deserve to be recognized for what they've given to me and what they've given to so many other people. First, my mom. My mom is an incredible example. We're very similar in the fact that we like to connect people and we are out in the community and we volunteer a lot and like do that sort of thing. So my mom is that really incredible example for me in that way. There's this theater artist and educator Judy Johnson in Muskegon, who was one of my first theater teachers and directors. Judy taught me everything I needed to know to be a choreographer. So when I was able to start choreographing musicals in high school, like that's all thanks to Judy. Diana McConnell, who was an incredible director, Sheila Wahamaki, Wendy Scattergood, who was one of my professors in college, who just did not give a shit about what anybody thought about her and taught me so much from 
the political science department. Cindy Beth, who I mentioned earlier, is like just such a shining light and is one of my dearest friends. Beth Beeman, who took over at the Playhouse from me. So like now there's this incredible lineage of women running that facility, which I'm super, super proud to be a part of. Um, our good friend Christine Cox yeah. has been like so inspirational since we've become friends. Our good friend Sarah McCarthy, like I look up to Sarah mm-hmm. so much and she's been a huge part of my TYA journey. My good friend Ann Schroeder, who like I work here with at the center, like she is inspirational to me every day and how she carries herself and how she supports other women. Frankly, you, Danielle. Stop. <laughs> Stop. You had I've such learned- an incredible yes. list of women going and now... <laughs> Like we now, I'm just gonna go crawl under this rock. No, 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 no. (laughs) Um, But I think I mean we've become such wonderful friends, and I admire how you move through the industry as a woman as well. Like we've shared so much in terms of like being moms and like our our passions, but also like how hard it is on a daily basis sometimes do all of the things. I really just try and lead by example, and I have thankfully found many opportunities to mentor other young women. So I established an intern, like an arts admin um, internship program at Interlochen when I was there. So I was able to intern like four amazing young college students that are now in the, working in the industry during my time there. And then since coming to the center, I also had an opportunity to work with some really amazing young women through their college internship programs and frankly, young staff that we have at the center now. I think it's super, super important to teach them how to advocate for themselves, how to seek out professional development opportunities. Like that is something I just did on my own. Where can I learn more? How do I do, how do, I do this job? Like, I don't know. Um, I was so alone when I was at the Playhouse. I really didn't have anybody teaching me anything. I was completely on an island. And I don't ever want anybody else to go through that, frankly. Not only teaching them the nuts and bolts of like how you do the job, but like having those conversations about like, how do you find professional development opportunity? Where do you find the funding for that? How do you advocate for yourself for a pay raise? How do you figure out what you want to do next? How do you manage up, right? If you're like in an admin role, like how do you manage up? What are those skills that you need? So I really try hard to have active conversations with those younger people that I'm engaging with um, to give them the skills I had to figure out on my own because so many women invested in me. I want to be the next person investing in the next generation. And I feel like too, a lot of that time where you reflect on who your mentors have been and what they've given to you, a lot of times it's the person who was there to listen or the person who gave their time in whatever way. I think that there's a really easy way to say, oh, well, this doesn't matter. They don't want to talk to me for 10 minutes or my advice won't mean anything. But then when you look at what's been really inspirational to you, it's those people that have stopped to have the extra little bit of conversation. The more that we lift each other up, things get lifted. People don't get left behind when we're lifting all of us up. And you're the example. (laughs) I try. It's all we can ask of ourselves is just to try. Yeah. And starting in politics too, and you're talking about policy, it's like you want to make the world a better place on such a broad scale. And I think that that's really enviable and lovely, but being able to see that effect that you have on one person, like when that one person gets their next job or when those students go and they're pursuing something else, or you see a student who's super shy the first day of class. And by the last day of class, they're, Mm -hmm. they're dancing their little hearts out, right? You get to see how how your presence and your guidance influences people on an individual personal level and how fulfilling that really is. Remembering that Kevin is here. Uh, Sorry, Kevin. Surprise. (laughs) Another thing that I think about a lot, I don't know how, what you were feeling whenever you were pregnant with Leo, but there was a part of me that didn't necessarily want to have a girl, but was like, I'm ready to raise a like girl powered female. Right. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I've got the skills and we have boys and they're wonderful and they're beautiful. And you know what? They eat dog ice cream. And, but I've come to realize, I've come to realize over the years. Yeah. That like being an empowered female around a group of men and raising men is also about like recognizing and saying, yes, thank you for doing this thing that has lifted me up so much and for I can raise like one empowered female or I can raise like one man who like goes and treats like all of the other people <laughs> they have that they meet in their life with respect and that we don't have to keep perpetuating these things that we've maybe felt like we needed to overcome 
And I think a big part of that is also being able to say to the men in our lives who like are those people that like Kevin and like all of the other um, guys on this on this pod squad of just how amazing you all have been supporting me. And I think Katie feels that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've been in this field for almost 15 years. And that certainly has not been my crazy for a 16 year old. I know. (laughs) Thank you, Danielle. Um, God, I'm so young. I just can't even believe it. Um, It certainly has not been my experience that male identifying coworkers, leaders, administrators that I have been surrounded by are at all interested in supporting women or supporting female identifying coworkers. Frankly, like I have worked with men that have been detrimental to my mental health and because of the way that they've treated me. I is so refreshing and lovely to have friends like Kevin and Josh and Brian that are really conscious of that and are really working hard in their own organizations to make sure that everyone has equal opportunity and people are treated well, you know, regardless of their position or regardless of what their job is or their gender identity. Like it definitely has not been easy to be a young, like, first of all, just the youngest person in the room. Right. And then being a woman on top of that, like, that's why I just try and garner the wisdom of the women who have come before me and watch how they have handled themselves and they have handled difficult situations without their example and their guidance. Like, I don't know how I would have made it through, but it's important to recognize as leaders, period, right? Regardless of gender, you have the opportunity to make or break somebody. And I certainly have worked with leaders and administrators that did not care and mistreated their female employees because they were female. It's very difficult to watch that happen and to be subjected to that. It's one of the reasons I like push back so hard sometimes on gender stereotypes and gender norms and want to support my female colleagues so much is because I have personally experienced that and I've watched other women go through it. And it sucks. <laughs> well, I, I will say that it's sort of nice, like being some somewhat that safe space or being that voice. But like as a guy and as a, a guy in this industry, I think all the things that I've learned are from women like you by telling me stories and like hearing things and then starting to recognize that behavior, like when I'm in meetings or when I'm doing things. I don't remember who first told me but it's always the woman who has to take notes in a meeting. And I was like, that can't be true. And then I started I started doing it. And I was like, holy shit, like every time I go in, it's always this person that gets asked or it's always this person that gets asked. And it's never like, it's not because it's their job. It's just because like they're the woman in the room. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So hearing things like that, and obviously like on the list of things, that's a very minor thing. It's just taking note of that and having those opportunities and having women in my lives that will share those stories so that I can have a moment that like in a leadership role to recognize it and you know, sometimes when we go, oh, shit, I do that um, and be able to to change that behavior and to teach other people to change that behavior. Not every man does it, Kevin, and it's not intentional. Most of the time it's not intentional. It is socialized behavior that we are <laughs> for. Unfortunately, that's just how we're raised in our society. Right. And so um, but I appreciate you recognizing that and recognizing the women that have said things and shared because it's not easy and it can be a little intimidating to talk about it. And I certainly have not had the worst of it. And I'm not saying that at all. It makes me more aware of other people's experiences just because I have experienced it to a certain extent in my career. So I don't, I just don't ever want that repeated for somebody else. Katie, what are your nicknames? I have a question, but I just, I'm, I, I want to call um, something else. Right I realize that I do. Well, I have, I have sort of a nickname. Um, when I was home a few weeks ago, I realized that like my parents call me Katie Beth. All right, I'm gonna call you Katie Liz. So, Katie Liz, <laughs> what is your favorite part about working in the industry today? Like everybody else, it you know the people are just a huge part of that, and the relationship building and the inspiration I get from others is is a huge part of of why. I do what I do and um, I'm constantly finding inspiration in other people's stories and other people's journeys and the work that they're producing and how creative they are and getting to have conversations like this. Like this is super valuable and super important and I just love the people. And also, and frankly, like we talked about impact earlier, that is what gets me out of bed every day is the idea that I 
that we have impact on what we do is actually important as much as like people tell us it's not. And when you get a, a comment in a patron survey says like this performance changed my child's life, it makes it all worthwhile. Katie. Kevin. We have been given permission to oh, use no. Brian's time machine. Oh, okay. Um, I think we've actually stolen it. Yeah. <gasps> I mean, I was just trying to, you know, just let people know that we're not as bad as we are. But, oh, JK. No. I mean, to be honest, after the last time Daniel and I borrowed it, Brian wasn't pleased. So, <laughs> did you guys leave like candy wrappers on the floor or something? Like, look, you can only mess with time so many times. Like, <laughs> Katie, Josh Benson has its torrid past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Katie, we're going to take you back in time. Okay. To. It's windy back there. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, to being 23 years old, taking over the playhouse, what advice would you give your past self? Oh, I've been thinking about this because when I was just young and inexperienced. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. I would tell myself or force myself, I would tell myself to build taking care of myself into a daily routine or weekly routine at minimum. I would tell myself to take better care of myself, to eat better, sleep better. Establishing that habit um, would make it easier for me today to take care of myself as like a full-time employee and a mother and a friend and all of those other things. So like take care of yourself, Katie. I also would tell myself that sometimes the people around you see you much more clearly than you see yourself. And there's a lot of value in that. I think I've always been really good at surrounding myself with good people with like wonderful thoughtful supportive people but I haven't always taken their advice or taken their support of me seriously I would tell myself to like actually listen to those people when they say you're doing okay or that's a really great idea or you're gonna make it through instead of discounting that support I've learned that lesson I would say in the last like year and a half and I wish I had learned it earlier those are great pieces of advice I'm glad that this is recorded because uh, Danielle and I will play that second one for you whenever you need to hear it. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything that we missed today that you think people should know? Kevin, one of the other things I have taken up in my spare time um, was I went back to dance class actually this fall. And as maybe as embarrassing as this is, I'm actually pretty proud of it. Um, so I became a jazzy diva this past fall at a local dance studio. It's a group of women that have been dancing together for like 25 years. They're amazing. They're kick-ass. I was in a dance competition, you guys, this year and performed in three recitals. Um, and frankly, it's like so great to get back into creative practice. It's so great to just move and like have a physical outlet after sitting at a desk all day. Um, and it's great to spend time with like 25 amazing women once a week who just are there to laugh and talk and catch up with one another and support each other and like dance on the side. Um, so it's been a really great thing that I've added back into my life in the last year. And I'm hopeful that I can, I can keep doing that. Um, but I think like for anybody that's thinking about like going back and doing something like that, getting back on stage or dance class or like whatever, you should do it. You should definitely do it. So how uh, can Kevin become a jazzy diva? Well, he's going to have to come to Michigan and be here every Wednesday night from 715 to 915. Um, Go to class with me. Perfect. Count and you're gonna need a in. silver sequin jacket. Uh because like standard I don't issue. Own one. Standard on. issue for the Jazzy Divas. Okay. So I'm curious, Kevin, if you can say asparagus five times fast now. Asparagus, 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 asparagus. You did you it. You did it. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty good. We've been Yay. practicing internally. So because you knew it was coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. And it was great to get to know you more as a fellow pod host and more about your career and your passions. And Danielle, thanks for joining me as our co-host. This has been a delight. So glad I got to do this with my two best friends. Thanks for having Aww. me. Aww. Hashtag something. Thank you, Kevin and Danielle, for having this conversation with Katie. I'm still amazed every time we do one of these that I, I think I know each of you pretty well at this point, and I learn so much every time, and, and this is no exception. Katie, I knew how hard you worked and how many hours you put into uh, the work at Whitehall, but I didn't realize the types of roles that you had to do, <laughs> like even things that fall under 
you know, usually facilities like cleaning the bathrooms and all of this extra stuff. It's like, oh my God. And I had no idea you had any kind of tech experience before. You never talked about, you know, doing lighting and audio and, and the costumes and all of that. So, I mean, I'm just even more impressed now than I, than I've been. So it was a wide, I had a wide variety of responsibilities from like painting and fixing steps and like renovating the restrooms and dealing with icicles and dealing with squirrels. I had squirrel infestation at one point in time. I had bats that I had to deal with. Like I would walk into the theater in the morning and there would just be like empty nutshells all over my stage. And it'd be like, what the heck guys? Like (laughs) really? And you were really? just talking to the squirrels <laughs> at that point. I, I would imagine she sang to them. She, you probably sang to yeah. them. If I know you, am uh, I wrong? I, oh my gosh, I have not talked to you guys about <laughs> very, the singing. It's very I? Disney princess esque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like at some point, the fairy godmother shows up. Oh, yeah. I mean, so the only way I could get the building to not flood is to visit her three times a day and sing. And if I didn't visit three times a day and sing, the building would the basement would flood. Like no joke. Such such a finicky haunted infestation there. This is not for public consumption. This oh, story. oh, this is the going. public will consume this. <laughs> yeah. So, what song yeah. did you sing? Is it something you made up? <laughs> no, I would. Have, I would sing this, this. This is ridiculous. This is so ridiculous. Um, I would sing the song "Good Morning" from the <laughs> musical "Singing in the Rain." How, how, how does that go? I've never seen "Singing in the Rain." I'm not going to sing well, it. Well, copyright. We can't. We can't broadcast this because mm. of copyright. Then oh, saved <laughs> by the copyright law. So wait, um, did you choose that song because you just enjoyed singing that song, or was that the building's favorite song? <laughs> they left it spelled out in nutshells on the stage. Was that a request? <laughs> Poor Katie. (laughs) I do have to say, though, I relate to, you know, I didn't quite do 80 hours a week, but when I was in Sussex, I was consistently doing about 60 a week because I didn't have those facilities duties, but um, I had everything else like you did. And I just felt like I, I understood that burnout that you get, even though you love the job. And I'm glad you talked about that because, you know, a lot of people that don't live it might hear you talk about burnout and think, oh, they don't like what they're doing anymore. But it's true. We still love and have passion for this work and being involved in the arts. But when you're alone and doing everything and doing that many hours, it's just, everyone needs a break. You need time just for your brain to be able to to have a break from something. And so thanks for talking about that. I I always think it's really interesting, um, especially, and maybe this happens in in other industries, but this is, you know, sort of um, what my experience is, is that those moments when I'm feeling like really burnt out, um, they always lead to those moments of, you know, a really good show, um, you know, something where like the, like you have a really good connection with an audience member or just an audience in general, and it leaves you with that feeling. And it's that feeling of like, oh yeah, like this is why I do this. This is why I love doing this. And it sort of like justifies that, well, that feeling of burnout. I won't say it justifies burnout. I know that's like the adrenaline that keeps us coming back for more. I mean, to talk about like burnout and taking care of facilities within my first, I don't know, four months of working at the playhouse at White Lake. Um, I tracked my hours and I spent 80 hours mopping water because the heating system wasn't like the new boiler hadn't been installed properly several years before. So this was an ongoing problem. Um, so I tracked my hours and I had spent two full weeks worth of time cleaning water out of the basement. So I finally took that to the city council and I was like, is this what you want to pay me for? Like, quite honestly, is this what you want to be paying me for? I should be producing art, (laughs) educating students, like working on budgets. Like I should not be mopping water out of the basement. So that prompted them to finally make the investment in fixing the issue. But she has like so much history and the people have walked through there and the stories that you hear people meeting and kissing for the first time in the balcony and then getting married and being married for 50 years. And like, you know, like those sorts of things and the way that that a space, a physical space can change people's lives. I mean, we all know, we all know what that is like, but it makes, again, the burnout maybe a little bit more worthwhile when you, when you know the impact that you can have on people's lives in a multitude of ways. So Katie, your time at Interlochen sounded heavenly just with the campus and with getting to walk across that campus and be in nature and work with the talent that you worked with there. What would you say talent-wise is your highlight of working there? Some of the your favorite artists that you get to work with and, and see at Interlock? Mm, that's a wonderful question. And I have like a list as long as my arm um, of wonderful people that I worked with. But honestly, like the the big name talent that comes through, like that's super exciting and really cool to see how those shows go up with the LED walls and all the lighting and everything. But honestly, like 
like some of the smaller artists that we worked with are some of my favorite memories because I really got to interact with them on a one-to-one basis and have great conversations with them. Um, Sarah Jarose, folk indie artist, she came and performed a couple of times and she is just incredibly lovely and so thoughtful and I love her music so much and she was a joy to work with. Um, Anna Gasteyer is one of my favorite artists that I've ever worked with. She was like such a lovely guest to have because she was so grateful for everything that we did. She was so kind and generous to our staff. Um, And then the next day, like after doing an amazing show, hitting it out of the park, did a masterclass with our theater students the next morning and she's an Interlochen alum. So she was able to talk about her time at Interlock and her professional career with SNL, then this kind of like cabaret career that she's built for herself, her television work. Like she was, yeah, like one of, one of the best moments. Like if she asked me to move to New York and be her personal assistant, I will do it. Like <laughs> I will go to New York to work for Anna, like ne- like hands down. Um, didn't happen, unfortunately, but I still... Anna, if you're listening, I will come work for you. I love you. <laughs> She's yeah, she was wonderful. Um, so just two examples of like some really great artists that I had the the real pleasure to spend time with and work with. So Katie, I want to jump um to sort of like the current era uh, in your interview. Um, and just the quote that I wrote down is you said that you think everybody has a basic human need to have access to the arts. And that's beautiful. Katie, I just want to thank you for sharing such a personal and I'm sure difficult story to say out loud to people and uh, about the sexism you experienced. And first of all, I'm sorry you had to experience any of it. Nobody should. And I just want to thank you though, because it's stories like yours, just like Kevin talked about. I identify with what Kevin was saying in that, you know, it's from hearing women talk about their experiences like that, that kind of teach us and make us aware of where we can be better. And um, so it's because of you. And I, I'm just, again, very sorry that you had to experience that. In the Andre Bouchard episode, he mentioned the discrepancies in compensation and women's rights and, and, and women's presence in the industry has kind of slipped out of focus while it's still very present and there's still a giant discrepancy there. And it's something that we should definitely focus on. So I, to also echo Brian, I really appreciate you being open and vulnerable and kind of putting that out there. Well, thank you, Brian and Josh. And, you know, to be quite honest, like in my whole time in the industry, the only people I've ever talked about this particular issue with is other women. Um, Never really been given a space until like very recently to have these conversations with men. I haven't experienced the worst of it by any means. And there are other women and other female identifying people in our industry that have had a variety of experiences, you know, different from mine. But I'm, it's just my hope that by sharing that and being open and vulnerable about it is that we can have more conversations. Like we talk about specific parts of being a woman in the workplace, but I think you you have to take all the pieces and parts and put them together to really understand a person's full experience. And so I just hope that by sharing that, we can have broader, deeper conversations and hopefully bring some light to that and give others the space that they need to share their experiences as well. Um, And I know I, I said in the interview that it's not all men, and it's truly not. I have some colleagues right now that are wonderful and because I've been able to have kind of some surface level conversation with them, they, I think, have become allies in the workplace um, more so than they were before. And that's very meaningful to me. But there's there's still a lot of work to be done. Katie, I agree, too, that talking about it is really important because it also allows space for a range of experiences and nuance to really be discussed because um, it's easy and I guess often to talk about how being a woman in an area that maybe is dominated or feels dominant, uh, dominated by masculine voices has its own challenges. But I mean, there are also situations where men are in that position. And, you know, there's never a time that we need to talk about this where we're really using a binary description of gender. Um, You know, all people, no matter what they look like or where they come from, can definitely experience this. And I I just think you're right that the more we kind of talk about our personal experience, just the more space it provides to see a broader range of what that experience is and then how to do better, because that's ultimately what it's about. But I will say, you know, I mentioned too, like, I, I don't know, there's like eight or nine kind of major cultural institutions in Muskegon County, and all but one of them were run by women at that time, um, which I ref- think about and reflect on and think like, 
what an incredible time it was to be a cultural leader in my hometown um, at that time. And I got to share space with those incredible women and watch them operate. And I was clearly the youngest of all of them. Um, they all had at least, you know, a good 20 years on me in terms of experience um, and, and leadership. But yeah, to when we would gather together and talk about what was going on or work on arts and humanities festival projects or whatever, it was like, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I reflect on it and go like, wow, what an incredible opportunity I had. And I think it just speaks to like, we've talked a lot about like, it's tough to be a woman and, you know, the, the obstacles that there are to breaking that glass ceiling and like moving up and being in leadership positions. But like, I've seen it, I've experienced it. Um, I've watched other women do it. And so I just hope that the conditions are there in the future for other women to have those same opportunities um, and to lead institutions like that. Yes. Well, I just wanted to confirm um, what Katie said and that your superpower is connecting people. I know that you, like you've already done so much in your career and I know that you've got so much more wonderful things um, left inside to come. And I'm really excited to just get to be your friend and to get to see it. Katie, before this ends, I just want to make sure you hear that you are amazing. I love that we got connected and we get to work together in this way and, and beyond. And I just feel very lucky to know you. Well, thanks, friends, for uh, joining us here. And Danielle, thank you for joining me on this great interview with Katie. And Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story. Your <laughs> story. <laughs> Katie, you're the best person I've ever met. And Kevin was about to do the out and he wasn't nailing it. So I'm going to finish off by wrapping this episode and say... <laughs> so we all learned a ton by listening to you, but to be honest, we also fell more in love with you. And um, that's just that's just who you are. And that's the message that you spread. And I want other people to know about it. So join us next time, friends. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I started off this conversation saying how much I identified with your burnout. And I also identified with when you leave the theater, like midnight, you walk through, everybody's gone. It's quiet. The theater's empty and dark. And I would walk through and look back and have that special feeling too, except I, you know, I, th I think you said it was something beautiful was your, your quote. I would say it was something terrifying because whatever was inhabiting that space at night wanted me to get the heck out and I felt it. <laughs> but I still loved my theater. It's just at night I had a, a little different experience. Than you. Brian, did you try singing to it? You know what? Maybe that was the trick. See? We didn't have a, a squirrel infestation to spell the words out in, in nuts, but... <laughs>